0: Investor's Chronicle. Companies and Market Show, welcome back. It is Thursday, the 22nd of September, as we record. On the episode today, Dan Jones as normal is hosting Alex Newman, Christopher Akers and Arthur Sands. But before we get there, a news roundup with me, John Rogers. The Bank of England raised interest rates by 0.5 percentage points to 2.25% on Thursday. Meanwhile, in the US, the Fed implemented a third successive 0.75 percentage point increase. Both central banks signaled that an aggressive policy would be in place for the foreseeable future. A premium pub and hotel business, Fuller, Smith & Turner said in a trading update covering the 25 weeks to 17th of September that sales were up against pre-pandemic levels, but its energy costs would rise by 125% before accounting for government assistance. Shares fell 1%. And competitor City Pub Group's shares rose over 10% after it had an update for the six months to June 26th, said that trading was back at pre-pandemic levels and is looking to grow the business through acquisitions. Moonpig shares fell 12% on Tuesday after the online card, and gift retailer, said that trading would return to pre-pandemic seasonality and that the company would focus resources on peak trading periods. Specialist recruiter S3 has defied economic gloom to report its strongest ever quarter. Shares rose 5%, though they are still 40% lower than this time last year. And Henry Boot has posted a 68% increase in pre-tax profit in its results for the six months to June 30th. Details on all of this and more on the Investors Chronicle website as usual. Elsewhere, Fraser's founder Mike Ashley will step down from his role as director following its AGM on 19th of October. Ashley, who owns 69% of the company's shares, said the business has gone from strength to strength since his son-in-law Michael Murray took over the top job. Former JD sports chair Peter Cowgill will be paid £3.5 million to not start a rival business or hire JD employees for two years, and another £2 million for a consultation role with the new administration. Sainsbury's is mulling the sale of £500 million worth of supermarkets to the real estate investment trust LXI REIT. Under the terms of the sale and leaseback deal, The retail chain would hand ownership of the 18 shops over to LXI and then rent them back from the REIT on long leases. And finally, Schneider Electric will acquire the remaining shares in industrial software company Aviva for 3,100p per share. Schneider already owned 60% of the company. That's all from me. Over to you, Dan.
1: Thanks, John. Yes, we have our result of the Week segment first up this week. We are looking at Kingfisher and Wicks in the DIY home improvement space. A difficult area right now, as with all parts of retail, but it's one where there are some signs of light and, and some positive noises. And our correspondent, Chris Akers, is going to be here to talk about that. Then we are talking to our Ideas Editor, Alex Newman, about a new paper from the uh, very well-respected Morgan Stanley strategist, Michael Mobusant, looking at market share and economic moats. And finally, we are talking to Arthur Sands about streaming services and Netflix in particular, and their shift and their interest in ad-based models, You know, becoming a little bit more like the traditional TV services in some ways, but in other ways, perhaps opening up new markets and, and new revenue streams. But let's start with our results of the week, Kingfisher and Wix. Uh, Chris Akers is here, who covers a lot of uh, different retail companies, including Kingfisher. Both companies are reported in the last few days, Chris. Um, why don't we start by just giving an overview, I suppose, of of the results. I mean, obviously, we're looking at deteriorating retail environment, tougher trading out there for both Signs of promise, but but you know, equally the, the headwinds are quite well known and, and quite difficult to avoid at this stage.
2: Hi Dan. Yeah, that's right. So both Wix and Kingfisher had half-year results out recently. And it is fair to say the impact of cost and demand headwinds facing the DIY and home improvement sector were pretty obvious. So Wix's sales actually held up, but revenue growth only came in at around one percent, and pre-tax profits were down. By 6%. But on the plus side, the company continued to build market share. Kingfisher, I think, fared worse in their results. So sales were down by 4%, pre tax profits down by almost a third. And in the key UK and Ireland markets, revenue was down by 10%. Management also mentioned a wider pre tax profit forecast range for the full year. And that sort of suggests, um, I think, that they're thinking about annual results coming in um worse than expected yeah so we've to the
1: end perhaps we, we we've um still got Wix as a buy kingfisher and our hold can you sort of explain the the rationale there what, what the thinking is in, that, in terms of that difference
2: sure so yeah as, as you say we've maintained our buy recommendation on Wix. uh we think Wix, its trade exposure and its growth model look more resilient than kingfisher in this market where demand is weakening uh, Kingfisher's market reach looks a bit more saturated. Kingfisher is also one of the most shorted shares listed in London, it's number three, according to the latest FCA data. And that's a pretty key warning sign about how the market thinks the shares are going to move. And I think an important point as well is that Wix trades on a slightly lower forward PE ratio than Kickfisher. So it's a bit more, a bit cheaper and more, more of an attractive rating as well. Yeah. I mean, there's some, some
1: interesting trends here in general. You know, home improvement, obviously, uh, an area which went through a huge pandemic boom for obvious reasons. That's uh, easing off now to an extent as, you know, quote unquote, normal life returns and, you know, price pressures make themselves felt. Both companies seem quite bullish, though, on, you know, as you'd expect, maybe on, on the outlook in terms of, you know, that structural change, you know, there being, uh, you know, more of a willingness to to maintain or, you know, uh, improve your home, given most people are still spending more time in it than, than they have been, you know, pre-pandemic. You know, a lot of people are doing hybrid working, they're still working from home a few days of the week. So they they're kind of suggesting that th- that demand is not going to fall back to pre-pandemic levels entirely.
2: Yeah, I mean, as Mark mentioned in his Wix uh, result, right up, um, management did mention that they think home working could sort of maintain um, trends and demand around home improvement. But I think that actually looks a bit dubious. Uh, Wix had a report out or a survey out recently that said there's been a moderate slowing of demand for home improvement from its post-COVID levels, which is so it of sums it up, I guess. But trade, trade demand is still pretty strong. Um, but demand is, is definitely weakening despite companies coming out with these bullish statements.
1: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I suppose the economic reality of uh, straightened times is going to override perhaps the desire to, to do uh, these big projects um, for a lot of people um, or even some smaller projects. But one, one uh, interesting thing as well that we've looked at quite a lot this year for various retailers is, is inventory. And inventory builds that have occurred you know during and post the peak of the pandemic, when you know supply chains really struggling, they're still struggling quite a bit. People have therefore been trying to build up their stock. But at the same time, that opens them up to the risk of being left with too much stock and having to discount, particularly when you get a, a change in sentiment as we we're, we're starting to see over this year. And Kingfisher, in particular, does seem to have quite a high inventory build at the moment.
2: It does. And as you say, there's a lot of ongoing uncertainty with supply chains and inventory positions and just companies thinking about how to actually anticipate how much inventory they're going to need. So Kingfisher have an inventory rebuild program they mentioned in the results. And one result of that was uh, free cash flow fell by about 86% in the half. So that's an obvious risk of Uncertainty around inventory, the obvious hit to the cash position.
1: I think Kingfisher, on their part, do say that you know. I suppose one, one thing is you know when you're looking at the kind of things that you know their brands being used, screw for Excel. A lot of them can be held over to next season. They're not perishable. They're not you know clothing that will fall out of fashion. So that they have that um, uh, up their sleeve potentially to avoid too much discounting and avoid too much of a hit to margin. The other interesting thing in in these results from Kingfisher, and again, not very surprising considering uh, all the energy issues we've got and got coming down the line, is, is there, them talking about energy efficiency and products to improve, you know, the home in that regard, whether it be insulation, whether it be smaller things. And uh, uh, and understandably, this is an area they seem to be keen to to build up and, and do more on as well in the in the months ahead.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there were definitely um, opportunities with, with that sort of, product down the line. But it's not just Kingfisher. Obviously, Wix have also mentioned similar products recently as well. Going back to the point, I think there are just too many relative downsides for Kingfisher set against Wix, which is why we've ultimately moved the recommendation downwards.
1: I think, yeah, on that, Kingfisher say energy efficiency is maybe about 10% of sales, but you know there's still a lot of questions over the 90%. Whereas, as you say, if you're Wix, you're building market share there's still some opportunities there, perhaps even in a difficult market, but we shall see on that. Uh, thank you, Chris. Let's talk about big picture now. Uh, in these times of inflation and rising interest rates and, and companies looking to protect margins, market share is important, economic moats are important insofar as you can uh, uh, maintain your moats and, and protect your your market. And Alex Newman, you've, you've written this week on a, a piece by Michael Mobasan, the uh, Morgan Stanley strategist talking about these moats, looking at the kind of companies that based on a review of the literature that, that he thinks are, are quite interesting from this perspective. And there's one or two surprises in there as well.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We can maybe come on to the surprises in a in a moment. But just to briefly sketch out the research, I mean, it's essentially sort of unpacking the question of whether and when does market share matter? How do you measure it and 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 when does it equate to a sustainable competitive advantage. So if you think about you know the different types of market share. There's there's I suppose there's the one where companies have grown organically and they're offering a competitive product. They're able to essentially sort of control the market with a differentiated offering that competitors can't can't reach. That gives them a sort of degree of pricing power, though obviously that's always being eroded by people trying to work out ways of offering products more cheaply. And then you have have markets which are defined potentially by uh, oligopolies or sort of almost anti-competitive elements where prices and in economic moats, quote unquote, are are held up by blocking competition. The paper, I, I thought, you know, it's it's quite a long one, but it picked out a few interesting points, which you know I think it's it's really good for or useful for investors to always bear in mind. You know, because companies will talk up their market share, but in in and of itself, market share is not necessarily a good thing um, if it's a not you know particularly profitable uh, market you're in. So one of the points he he points out: nascent markets often lead to both high rates of market share instability as new entrants, you know, sort of sniping at the uh, at the earlier, you know, the, the first movers, and that makes it quite hard for investors to pick out the discernible um, winners. Um, and it, but then conversely, you've got mature markets, like he, he, he does a deep dive into the, the global automotive and the US automotive um, industry. Really, really mature markets, you've got, Com- you know something like eight companies which last year made more than 100 billion dollars in sales. so there, it's an enormous industry globally, but there's little competitive advantage when you when you look at you look at those companies that, and the way they compete against one another. so you know net margins still in the single digits. but yeah I, I thought it was a really interesting piece of research on 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 the sort of things that investors should think about when they are looking at market share.
1: When you mentioned you know, the size of these markets, it can be different for large and small companies or, you know, certainly established markets and new ones. And I think we've kind of seen that perhaps in, in recent months as well, with the thing that comes to mind for me is SaaS, you know, the tech market where everyone always talks about having huge target addressable markets because they're offering a new service, but, but quite often barriers to entry can be relatively low there. And and it can be a case that A, you might not get all that market yourself and B, you might find the competitor comes in and 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 take some of that from you, but, but yeah, but the interesting part maybe of this particular research is, as you say, some of those mature markets and and how you know some big companies function and continue to function very well in there alongside one another. Uh, there were some UK focused names he he picked out as well. I think.
3: Yeah, I mean, on on that point on software, it's, it's a yeah, it's, it's a great point, and often software because it involves uh, lots of technical ability investment in intangibles, they're sort of like the, the secret source is sometimes a little bit hidden, um, that they, they they can actually be a very good source of economic moats, um, and which could lead to very sustainable and defendable uh, profitability. Um, and if you just look at, you know, th- this is the age still, you know, t- despite their, the brutal year they've had of the tech giants and the way they've been able to to capture their markets in that way think Google's you know complete global dom- dominance of the, the the internet search industry as as a prime example and there's you know a couple of um, software or, or internet platform What was one internet platform business that being right move which um M- cites as um as, as a good example of an economic moat relics equally um, has built itself quite a s- sustainable and defendable market um, share. I, mean, I think the one the one company which really stood out for me, or it's actually a sector that's highlighted by the report as having very high economic moats, uh, a very high economic moat is the tobacco industry. So British American tobacco is highlighted on the list, not Imperial Brands, alongside Philip Morris and Altria. And it sort of feels surprising in a way because you sort of think, okay, cigarette manufacturing, yes, there is that there, there are supply chains to put together there, there's manufacturing capacity, that's that's never that easy. But it, it also doesn't really feel like there's a huge barrier to entry for a market like that. Their market share is fairly s- static. You know, there's questionable brand equity value. But then when you sort of un- unpack it, you realize actually the, the greatest economic moat that these companies, the tobacco companies have, is actually regulation. So, and that's, you know, you can you can apply the regulation question to, other areas like like software and technology but with with tobacco you know smokers you've got this this issue of obviously smokers willingness to pay almost anything for a packet of cigarettes we can't be discounted but why you're not seeing new entrants come in and 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 pick off the the outsized margins that you know the the dominant global uh, tobacco companies uh, have and uh, have been able to maintain is because it's just it's actually very hard to enter this industry partly because you can't really market it in it because globally most um tobacco marketing has been has been banned so you've got to you've got to you know you've got to creep if you were to enter the market you'd have to creep in through very sort of creative ways and in a, in effect then regulation has has created it's probably one of the greatest assets that these businesses have anyway it's just, I, I thought it was worth considering and highlighting for readers this this Piece of um, uh, research this week.
1: And there's another interesting angle to that tobacco side and the regulation piece as well, I suppose, which is you know vaping, which a few years ago is maybe seen as actually something that could really disrupt this market. Uh, obviously, the, you know uh, the tobacco brands have their own interest there and have, have built them up, but but even their regulation has made itself felt. I'm thinking of you know Juul in the US, which you know rose to prominence quite quickly and then has really been you know clamped down. And it's got fines for you know, underage vaping, and has now had its products, uh, you know, banned in the U.S. So, so you know, the regulatory aspect there is even with this, you know, offshoot has really made itself felt and, and rewarded the incumbents again.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of feel if you walk in the street, you sort of think, well, wow, vaping really has arrived. Just, just on sort of anecdotal evidence, the number of people who are buying these, you know, cartridges. But yeah, I mean, globally, is the the thing to focus on is cigarette consumption is, you know, continues to grow, um, unfortunately.
1: Speaking of market share and defending market share and defending market position, we come now to our final segment, and it is on the streaming services and Netflix in particular. Netflix has obviously had a pretty bad year, uh, losing subscribers, Uh, share price uh, falling steeply, and it's got a number of ways it wants to try and uh, improve its situation one of which is selling adverts. And Arthur Sands has written about this and its nascent plans uh, in the magazine this week. Arthur, can you tell us a bit more, first of all, about what Netflix wants to do?
4: So yeah, as like, most people realise, Netflix had a pretty tough year. Um, started actually started at the back end of last year when the sort of subscriber numbers started to flatten and then they lost a million subscribers. I think it was in the second quarter of, this year, and their share price has gone down sixty percent. There was a bit where Bill Ackman bought a bunch of shares after their initial um, announcement, and then the, well, after its share price had fallen thirty percent, and then the following announcement, it dropped another thirty percent, and then Ackman sold his position, which um, I think caused some investors um, much mirth. But um, yeah, so in response to Netflix, basically spent loads and loads of money on content creation and all they cared about was growing subscribers. And they, the 2019 was their peak outflow. I think they had like 3 billion of um, cash outflow as they were investing in new shows. And then um, as subscriber growth has stalled, um, partly because of the competition from like Disney and Hulu and other people coming into the market, but also partly just because I think they've, especially in America, are reaching sort of Saturation of that market in terms of there aren't that many more, they have over 200 million subscribers. There aren't that many more people around. It's like harder to get the get subscribers later on in the process, especially when competition comes in. So they announced basically a couple of things. A, they're getting into gaming, and B, they are um gonna add a sort of um add-tiered subscription service, which will be cheaper than their normal subscription service. Um they haven't announced it yet, but I think it's gonna be around maybe eight dollars versus is in the US versus $15 a month so the number crunching I did for this to get a feel for whether it would be a good idea or not was to think so if it was $8 then it's $7 less than the normal subscriptions they're going to want to make at least $7 more from the ad revenue per month per subscriber probably more than that because they're going to have to pay some extra there's going to be some extra costs related with this um, advertising subscription service they're currently they're Decided to use Microsoft, so they're paying Microsoft to sort of managing the tech side of it, but also the um, marketing side of it. So finding people, um, advertisers who are going to sell advertising space on the platform. Side aside, the, market, the Microsoft point is sort of interesting in itself, partly because Microsoft's not like a leader in this space. Google is like kind of dominates the space, so it's like interesting that they've gone with Microsoft. But also, it kind of shows how ubiquitous those big tech companies are, because like Netflix is currently using AWS as its cloud service, but maybe you know it starts a relationship with Microsoft in the ad side of the business, and then maybe they switch to Azure. Like that's kind of a strength that Microsoft has over Amazon, which is they have these. It is a B two B company and has like an enterprise side of the business, and then maybe it's like an interesting way for them to catch up with AWS, who currently have the biggest like market share. In that space but that's sort of an aside from the original question so um back yeah. to uh we, we can come back to the, the microsoft point maybe in a
1: moment because it is interesting as you say um but in terms of yeah the, the modeling and some of the, the sort of the modeling you've done which is in the the piece and you can uh refer to this week's issue uh listeners if you're particularly interested in more of the the detail but but some of the question as well obviously is whether this will attract new subscribers to Netflix people who uh, or maybe you know bring people back people who cancelled for for cost reasons or whether it will uh, lead to uh, some existing subscribers trading down and you know if they get the the numbers right in terms of the ad revenue they bring in whether that will be more profitable for them uh, to have people trading down or to build this up to a certain level the other thing you mentioned is you know given Netflix uh, the viewing habits the info it has on, on people's viewing habits is quite, uh, um, well, it's certainly advanced compared with some other platforms. So that should, in theory, enable it to attract a better advertising rate, which could help its, its overall numbers.
4: Yeah, so in general, I actually think they're going to want people to trade down from the $15 subscription to the $8 ad subscription. So as I mentioned, there's a $7 difference. But I was trying to get a feel for how much money they could actually make from ad revenue for each of their users. And I looked at Sky's uh, advertising revenue um, owned by Comcast, and they make um, over 500 million a quarter or less um, from ad revenue, and then they had around 20 million subscribers, and it came out at like eight dollars ad revenue per Sky viewer. but you would so that's about roughly what Netflix would want to break even, but they're going to want more than that. but actually these streaming platforms are better. You get more return on your advertising dollar on a streaming platform than you do on regular TV because you have more data on the people, who are the users. So on like Sky TV, you just like send out the ad to everyone who's watching that show at that time. So you kind of know, oh, they're watching football, so maybe they we get a vague sense of what they're interested in, what we should market to them. But on Netflix, you know what they've watched for a while you know, and you can like have more customizable ads for those users. So you should get more return on your advertising dollar at Netflix than you would at Sky. So Netflix can charge more than Sky would be able to charge. And you can see that at Hulu. I couldn't see the, find the exact figures, but the New York times reported on them from 2019. And it said that they are Hulu made around $15 per subscriber um, per month in 2019, so if you thought Netflix can make around about that much, give will take maybe the demand for advertising is going to go down during the recession. Well, it probably will, but I'm not sure exactly what that would do to pricing. But if you assumed that around $15 was the amount they got per subscriber, I estimated that if they switched half of their subscribers down to the advertising, um, well, use the word down. I don't even, Yeah, Half their subscribers switched the advertising product. That their revenue would go up 34%. And when I then looked at the analyst forecasts, they're expecting revenue to go up 20% in 2014. So maybe somewhere there between 20% and 34% might be sort of the revenue growth prospects for them. So that's um in the next couple of years, which like which does look pretty enticing. And I yeah. guess it depends how many people they can get to trade down. And you would think going into a recession, you would people would be pretty encouraged to trade down to that. And I I just feel like also people consume TV in a different way. And there's a lot of I I got some stats from um, an analyst saying that actually loads of like 50% of Netflix users are also mobile game users. So I think maybe and and they'll consume they use their mobile phones while they're watching TV. And nowadays people just like got so many different ways to Amuse themselves if there's an ad on the TV for a few minutes. They're just going to switch over and like use their phones. So I feel like maybe they will actually they will have quite a high like switch rate to the lower Yeah,
1: as you as you say there. Yeah, the 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 ads may not be as intrusive as or as annoying uh, as they were in the past, purely because people are happy to look at another device and and bank that that cost difference. Uh, so even if streaming does become a bit more like traditional TV and the use of ads. It's not necessarily going to be an impediment, I suppose the other question is whether that it could open up new markets for Netflix you know in in Asia, for example, you know you get a lot of uh streaming services where they are sold at a very low price point and again funded by ads and Netflix presumably you know if they want to make deeper inroads into these markets may be thinking this is the way to do it this is the tried and te- tested way of doing so, so that might be something as well.
4: they were talking about trying to make inroads into India, which hasn't been very successful for them at all so far. So I actually hadn't thought of that point in my piece. But yeah, I think that's definitely an interesting point. That, yeah, if it's a lot, if it's cheaper then we will be able to make inroads there. I think the I think is actually quite interesting announcement from them last week was they've signed this deal with Ubisoft, who are a European game developer. And they are now can you can now play mobile games, Ubisoft games on the Netflix app, including Assassin's Creed, which if people like gaming was like a Pretty, it's still a pretty popular game, but it's like definitely when I was growing up a few years ago, it was like a massive game for my generation. People would spend hours and hours playing Assassin's Creed, and like having that on the Netflix. Netflix had got into gaming previously and acquired a gaming studio, released a bunch of games, but a lot of them were based on Netflix IP and were just like quite games to be honest. And they weren't getting that much traction. Like one percent of their users were playing these games, but now they've signed this deal with Ubisoft. I think there will be a lot more demand for those ubisoft games gaming just is really specialist and it's like very hard even like amazon tried to get into it apple tried to get into it and they couldn't do it the, but the game developers have a lot of experience to make good games and people spent hours playing assassin's Creed. like when i was a kid i just spent hours and hours and hours playing this game the sort of cost per hour spent from your users is pretty low on gaming whereas Netflix spends loads of money making some show and then people binge it in a weekend and they've got to spend loads of money making another show to keep their users happy. So in that sort of aspect of the gaming aspect is pretty interesting to me.
1: Yeah, I guess it's the wider question as well of, or the wider point about gaming is one thing ads Adds another, they you know they go together, perhaps relatively well. There's a point about you know businesses looking to to bolster some margin. You know, advertising would appear to be the way forward. There's a, a person I follow on Twitter. I think handles modest or something like that, and they've a recurring theme of recurring point of you know on a long enough timeline, everyone sells ads because it does seem to be a in theory a simple way to to boost returns. So we'll see what that does for Netflix. We should um just to conclude, we should return to Microsoft. We said we would, as you say, that was an unusual partner for Netflix, perhaps, given this isn't an area where Microsoft uh, is typically used. I suppose maybe one reason is because a lot of the rivals they could have used already have their own streaming services. You know, maybe, um, you know, Google's obviously ad service you use on YouTube. You can see why Netflix wouldn't want to use them. And, and Microsoft, as you say, has that advantage of being a, a B2B provider, and this might might open some more doors for it in future.
4: Yeah, I think the, the question that I've been asking myself I haven't really got any great answers yet? It's just like in the cloud industry, it's how to sort of distinguish as an investor between probably Amazon, Google, and Microsoft, which are the three big providers. The argument that I've found most compelling is that Microsoft and Google have these B2B relationships and Amazon doesn't. So every time I see an example of sort of Microsoft doing some work with a company that's not necessarily selling them Azure, but something else, I always think, if it's a big tech company, oh, they're probably just getting their foot in the door here to then get the big cloud computing contracts. Every time I see that, it sort of reminds me of actually, although AWS is ahead of these Google and Microsoft in this market, those B2B relationships that they have could be a good way for them to catch up with, with Amazon. So maybe Amazon's position is not as entrenched as necessarily it seems right now, although it's going to take a while to catch up because Amazon is well ahead.
1: Uh, as you say, Yeah, uh, this partnership with Netflix could open those doors for Microsoft's cloud service, Azure, and, and you know, there's definitely still pretty, uh, it's competitive between three giant players, and uh, which brings us back to uh, uh, Alex's uh, point, rather than, you know, a, a wider range of businesses, but it's certainly fiercely competitive between that small group of companies. We have run out of time for today, so thank you very much to Arthur, to Chris, to Alex, and to John, and thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Markets show.